0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, as was uh, mentioned earlier, today is the one-year anniversary for Kirsten and I. Uh, we celebrated yesterday. We got to go see uh, David at Sight and Sound, which, if you haven't gone and you were it's something you'd be interested in doing, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it is a very good production. They do a very good job over there. Uh, so we got to do that in the right around noon. Uh, and then we got to go out for dinner and celebrate, which is great. Um, she's not out from the two- and three-year-olds, though, and I really wanted her to be here because it's our anniversary and I'm preaching. So, I'm like, oh, there we go. So, uh, Jaren, could you sneak into the twos and threes for me real quick and see if you could pull her out? <laughs> I'm not going to call her out or anything. I just wanted her to be out here, that's all. Oh, she's over there? Okay. That's all. I just wanted to make sure that she was out here to hear the message. I'm not going to call her out or nothing. (laughs) Well, I'll draw everyone's attention uh, elsewhere. So, you would think with it being uh, my first anniversary of being married and me preaching that I would be speaking on marriage or family or love or something like that. Uh, And that idea did cross my mind. But something uh, that also came up, and usually when it comes to deciding what I'm going to preach on, I kind of just ask the Lord for guidance, and then I leave it up to him to kind of put ideas in my head. And it just so happened that one of the teens, and it's not one of the teens that's here, so I'm not going to call out any of them either. Uh, One of the teens that goes to the youth group sent me a message, and it's a probably the most common question I have received in ministry from teenagers, uh, bar none. And it always goes kind of along the lines of this. I'll use the example they use in the question. Uh, Say someone is a Christian, and then they go and they, uh, usually it's do something really bad. Um, In this specific example, it was they go and rob a bank. Would they go to hell? Right? It's, it's always these questions of if someone is genuinely saved and then they do some really bad thing, do they lose their salvation? Do they go to hell? And this isn't just a question that only teens wonder about. Many Christians live with this fear that they are one slip uh, from eternal damnation. Uh, that they're one slip from... Granted, we think it's a big slip. Right? It's not some little slip. It has to be something big. If we're To use kind of Catholic uh, vocabulary, it's a mortal sin, not a venial sin. It's one of these big sins that if you don't get forgiveness for it, when you die, you are severed from the grace of God. And that is something that every Christian eventually has to grapple with, is if I mess up bad enough, does God call it quits on Me. And that can lead to a lot of worry, that can lead to a lot of fear. And if our eternal security was dependent on us, if it depended on how good we were, we would have every right to fear uh, because we'd have to get saved every single day. Uh, And there are some denominations within Christianity that hold that you can lose your salvation and that you do need to get saved again. But the eternal security of each believer is dependent on the power of God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not dependent on you, as we're going to see. And so, for this message, we're just going to look at each member of the Trinity, and we're going to start with God the Son. So, you can open your Bibles to John 10. Uh, This is where we're going to start for the first chunk of the message. John 10, and we're going to start in verses 22 to 24. So John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Oh my, I am cutting out. Right. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So this phrase, at that time, is a time marker in the passage. If you think of the book of John as a movie, this is a scene change. This lets you know that the scene has changed at that time. You see this when you see words like then or after. Because between verse 21 and between verse 22, even though we don't see it, two months have passed. Verse or Chapter 10 and the preceding verses even before that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles. We read in verse 22, that it is the time of the Feast of Dedication. We actually know what this one is. You may be somewhat familiar with it. We would call Hanukkah. Uh, this is the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah when the Maccabees cleansed the temple after uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Romans desecrated it. So about two months have passed. It's now winter, as we also see in the text from verse 23. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So in order to understand what we're about to read, it helps to have a little context. So still staying in John 10, we're going to go back to verse 1 because Jesus uses a very important illustration for the text later on in John 10. John 10 verses 1 to 5. Truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep way. He is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee for him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus is using, as he often does, a figure of speech to teach. And he talks about a shepherd, a doorkeeper, and some sheep. So this is something you can see even to this day, but especially at the time of Jesus. Uh, If you're a shepherd with your sheep out in the pastures uh, and something comes up, you need to go do something. uh, Some emergency happens or it's just nighttime and you're going to bed. They had what were called courts. Uh, They were basically four stone walls without a ceiling. And there was a designated doorkeeper and that is where shepherds could bring their flocks they would be stored safely for a time they would go do their thing whether that's sleep or some emergency or whatever and then they would come back and they would be able to call their sheep out now the shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know the shepherd which is very good because some of these courts were huge and you could have lots of different flocks all mingled together So the sheep have to know the shepherd's voice and the shepherd has to know his sheep so he doesn't end up getting a wrong sheep. So he doesn't end up stealing. The shepherd doesn't call all the sheep. He just calls his own. And there's a good reason for that. As verse five puts it, they don't know the voice of strangers. A sheep that is not the shepherd's doesn't recognize him. It thinks he's a stranger, doesn't recognize his voice, won't come to him. Now that's the illustration the shepherd comes, the sheep know his voice, he removes his flock from the rest of the flocks, and then he goes ahead of them. And they follow because they know his voice. But if you look at verse 6, this vigor of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. They didn't get it. So Jesus is going to explain the illustration. Verses 7 to 18. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So Jesus explains he is both the door and the good shepherd. As the door, to be part of the shepherd's flock, you have to pass through Jesus. In order to be saved, to kind of take the illustration and put it into the what's actually being taught, in order to be saved... The only way is Jesus. And it's not Jesus and something else. It's not Jesus and your good works. It's not Jesus and some other uh, religion. It's not Jesus and some other X, Y, Z. It is Jesus. Jesus is the only way to salvation. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone can be forgiven of their sins and saved from their sins. And beyond this, Jesus is also the good shepherd. If you look at verse 11, there is one characteristic given about the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A good shepherd is willing to die protecting his flock. And this good shepherd is contrasted with the hired hand. Verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. The hired hand is not the owner of the sheep. Uh, Most likely the hired hand was paid to watch over the sheep, and the money isn't worth it when the wolf comes. He doesn't really care about the flock. He just cares about the paycheck he's getting at the end of it. And when danger comes, like a wolf... Instead of protecting the sheep, instead of laying down his life for the sheep, the hired hand runs away. He saves himself, and he allows the flock to be destroyed. Jesus is not the hired hand. Jesus is the good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, he is willing to sacrifice himself. He lays it down, as he puts it in verse 18, on his own initiative. He does it willingly, and he does it with full authority. So the reason we go back to this part is because in John 10, and following, Jesus is going to bring up this illustration of a shepherd and sheep once again. And that's why these are connected in the gospel of John, because they are related in that illustration. So now we get back to verse 22 knowing now that Jesus is the good shepherd who is willing to lay his life down for his sheep. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication, or Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So, Jesus is in a conversation with the Jews and they are being very straightforward, uh, uncharacteristically so, almost. Very simple. If you're the Messiah, tell us. If you're you're the anointed one, just say so. And Jesus' answer is very interesting in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me. Jesus' answer is, I already did tell you I'm the Messiah. And you might be wondering, okay, where's that? Well, if you go to John 8, so you just go two chapters back, verses 56 to 59, we get to the end of a conversation Jesus is having earlier in the narrative. Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they very clearly understood what Jesus was trying to communicate because their response in verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus claims the covenantal name of God. When God in discussion with Moses, is asked, what's your name? God gives him the name, I am. Jesus takes that on himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And it's not like the meaning got confused because they were going to stone him on the spot for blasphemy. They clearly understood what Jesus was getting at by claiming to be the I am. Jesus also, though, points to his works back in, verse, or back in chapter 10. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. This is very similar to when someone else had a question about Jesus' Messiahship, although it wasn't an enemy. It was a friend. It was John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, verses 2 to 5, we read this. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? John's having some doubts. Well, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So even when his own friend, an actual cousin, asked, are you the Messiah? Jesus already points to his works and says that these are enough to prove my Messiahship. So Jesus already made the announcement that he's the Messiah. He he already made himself equal to God. He already took on the name I Am. He already proved it through the many, 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 many miracles that he did fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And yet... They don't believe. Why? Well, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. It's that simple. They don't believe because they're not his. Remember, the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and when the shepherd calls, they respond. These are of a different flock, these are not Jesus' sheep. So they will not believe. They will not respond. If they were of Jesus' flock, they would come to know Jesus as Messiah. They would come to have faith in Jesus. And as a side note, if there is someone in your life that you have been spending years trying to reach for Christ and it is just like slamming your head against a wall, while I am not encouraging you to give up on them or to stop praying for them because we cannot know who is of Jesus' sheep and who is not, there is a very real possibility that they will never come to know him because they don't know him. Jesus calls with his voice and they aren't his sheep and they don't know him and so they won't come. Now that's not to say, again, give up because we are called to give the gospel to everybody and we are called to pray for the unsaved. So if you have someone you've been trying to reach for years and years and years, keep going. But do realize that not everybody is included in Jesus' flock. Not everybody will hear the call of the good shepherd and respond. Then we get into verses 27 and 28. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and they follow him. That's how he knows who are his sheep. That's how we know who his sheep are. They will follow him. And we would know them today as, well, Christians. Anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Anyone who... Upon realizing the problem that they have with God, that God is holy and they are not, and they have separated themselves from God and broken their relationship with God, and they now deserve all of the punishment and wrath God can pour out on them. And realizing that they can't do anything on their own to solve that problem when they hear of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he as the son of God came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross and shed his blood to pay that price for your sin so that you could have a right relationship with God. When they hear that, his sheep follow. And those of us who have made that decision to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, as enough to have our sins forgiven, are of his sheep. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep follow his voice. We know from other passages in the New Testament that those who are going to be saved have been determined before the creation of the world. And we also know that it is a personal choice to come to salvation. And this is really what we see here in this passage. The shepherd calls to his sheep, and he knows who his sheep are, and that they will respond, and the sheep follow him. It is both God's sovereignty and human free will. And now that they are his sheep and they follow his voice, they get eternal life. And all they have to do is be perfect little sheep and they will stay in the flock. Now, all the sheep have to do is make sure they stay right next to the shepherd and never do anything wrong. And they will get to stay in the flock. No. It is not dependent on the sheep. It is dependent on the shepherd. A Christian's salvation isn't something the Christian is responsible for securing. It is not something that you have to hold with white knuckles and gritted teeth your whole life, hoping that you don't mess up bad enough that you lose it. That is nowhere in Scripture. What is in Scripture is this, verse twenty eight. I gave eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This word snatch means to seize by force. Uh, A great example of it is like Saturday morning cartoons where the the robber in his black and white striped shirt, never understood why they all wore the same outfit, Uh, his black and white striped shirt and his little black bandana with the eye holes and his little black cap, Comes running up behind the old lady and just grabs the purse and keeps running, and then the good guy has to go save the day. That is a great example of what this word snatch means. It is overpowering someone and taking something that they have by force. And if you notice, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That includes you. You're included in the no one is able to overpower Jesus' claim on you. You can't sin big enough. You can't sin bad enough to overpower Jesus' hand. But Jesus isn't the only one securing your salvation. And here's where we get into verse 29. The Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus now points us to the next person that your eternal security, your salvation is dependent on and that is the Father. My Father is greater than all. That, again, includes you. And again, snatch here has the idea of overpowering someone to take what they have. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Not you, not someone else, not demons, not Satan himself is strong enough to overpower God's hold on you. But with the idea of a shepherd, what's very interesting is that throughout the Old Testament, as God is described, he's also described as a shepherd. So turn with me to Ezekiel 34. It's not a book we often hear uh, messages out of. But Ezekiel 34, going after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations. This is another passage where God the Father is described as a shepherd. It's going to be verses 11 to 16. And you will be able to hear the language of the shepherd, of God our shepherd. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. Verse 14, I will feed them in a good pasture. And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. I myself will search for my sheep. I will care for my sheep and deliver them. I will bring them out to their own land. I will feed them in a good pasture. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. That sounds like a really good shepherd to me. And much like when we looked in John 10, there is a contrast here. God is the good shepherd. But if we go back to verses two to four, we see who the bad shepherds are. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and close yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. These are the bad shepherds. And in these illustrations, these would be the leaders of Israel. These would be the religious leaders. These would be the elders. And we see the many, many abuses they have wrought On God's flock, and God is tired of it. So He's going to be their shepherd now. And He is a good shepherd. I think verses 12 and verses 16 of Ezekiel 34 do a great job of beautifully summing up God as shepherd. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Verse 16, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. The sheep are still a part of the shepherd's flock despite the fact that they're scattered. Uh, This actually works pretty well with the, the David production that we saw yesterday because they use a lot of live animals in that production. And kind of at the start, we start with young how to be a shepherd. And as part of his learning to be a young shepherd, he gets very upset because his sheep keep scattering. And what you see throughout the production is little boy David running after his sheep and not being able to keep up. His sheep are scattering. And it's the same thing here with God and his sheep. To use the illustration of a shepherd, he's out in the field, and some of his sheep are over there, and some of his sheep are over there, and some of them are over there, and some of them are over there. They're kind of every which way. But the shepherd doesn't just throw in the towel and walk away. And beyond the fact that they're scattered all over the place, the sheep are also not doing so hot because uh, some of them are lost, some of them are broken, some of them are sick. But the good shepherd doesn't leave any of them behind. He seeks the lost. He brings back the scattered. He binds the broken. He strengthens the sick. The sheep stray from the shepherd and it's the shepherd's job to bring them back. It is the shepherd's job to care for them. It is the shepherd's job to deliver them. And God is the shepherd who cares for his sheep no matter what. And if we're honest with ourselves as Christians as those of God's flock, we tend to wander a little bit more than even sheep do, especially on the cloudy and the gloomy days, especially when life gets very hard. We have a tendency to wander away. But God is a good shepherd and he will bring you back. He seeks for the scattered and he brings them back. God is the shepherd who cares for his sheep no matter what. If you look in verses 11 to 16 and you just count, God says, I will 11 times in seven verses. I will search for my sheep, verse 11. I will care for my sheep, verse 12. I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered, verse 12. I will bring them out from the peoples, verse 13. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, verse 13. I will feed them in a good pasture, verse 14. I will feed my flock, verse 15. I will lead them to rest, verse 15. I will seek the lost, verse 16. The fat and the strong I will destroy, verse 16. I will feed them with judgment, verse 16. Something you should notice from all of these I wills coming from God is that it's 100% on him. I will, not the sheep will. I will. The sheep wander off. The shepherd brings them back and keeps them safe. Your eternal security as a believer, that you will, once saved, always be saved, is not based on your good behavior. If it was, you would have zero eternal security. I would have zero eternal security. It is based on God the Father being a good shepherd and keeping you in the flock. So if God can stop being a good shepherd, And if Jesus can stop being a good shepherd, you have every reason to fear for your salvation. But they can't, and they won't. But there's one more person who's responsible for your eternal security, and it's not you. It is the Holy Spirit. So here we're going to get into Ephesians. And this is largely where we will end for our message. Ephesians 1. And if you ever have trouble remembering the order of those four books... Uh, something I teach the teens nearly every time I go into one of these four books uh, Gentiles eat pork chops. G E P C. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, that was taught to me by my youth pastor when I was at Lebanon Valley Bible Church. It is now what I teach them. It has never done me wrong. I have always remembered the order because Gentiles eat pork chops. And it's true. Gentiles do eat pork chops. So, Ephesians 1. And it's going to be verses 13 and 14, and then we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 30. So, Ephesians 1, verse 13, looking at the Holy Spirit. In Him, referring to Jesus Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So as a human being, after hearing the gospel and believing the good news of Jesus Christ, you are sealed. Now let me explain what that is. Um, In ancient Israel, actually to some extent uh, in the Middle East even to this day, you had what was known as the king's seal. Uh, how many of you, when you graduated, got a class ring? Show of hands, did anyone get one of those? Okay, it's, a class ring is probably the closest thing to it other than like a signature that we would have today. Uh, this was usually a ring uh, that had some kind of intricate metal design on it. It was, it was unique to the person. And the individual would either wear it on their finger or they would wear it as a necklace. And it was for very, very important people. The king had his own seal. And so when the king needed to send out an announcement or send a message to another kingdom or send a gift and make sure that the people knew who it came from, uh, while we would send a card with our names, uh, what they did was they would take a, uh, some soft clay, they would put it on the scroll or on the gift or whatever, and the king would take a signet ring and he would press it into the soft clay. It would leave the imprint of his signet ring, and then it would go. And the seal did two things. One, it told you who it came from. It showed you who had the authority behind whatever was going on. So if it was a new law, it showed you that it had the king's authority because it bore the king's seal. The second thing the king's seal did was it protected whatever was being sent. Because as long as that seal wasn't broken, you knew the insides weren't tampered with. You knew someone didn't try and change the law or steal something from the gift or tamper with the message from one kingdom to another. As long as the seal was unbroken, you knew it had been protected because it bore the king's seal and you knew it had the king's authority behind it because it bore the king's seal. As a Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is who is stamped on you. It is the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. And this does two things. One, it proves that we're gods. We bear his seal. We are under his authority. People should know who we come from. And two, it protects us. As long as that seal isn't broken, you can't be tampered with you can't be changed, you can't lose that salvation. And because the Holy Spirit is the seal, much like the good shepherds of God the Father and God the Son, nobody has the power to break that seal. That seal remains unbroken because it is the Holy Spirit who is the seal. Now beyond that, we also see in verses 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit is our pledge. Uh, Some versions may have our down payment for the future inheritance. So all of those things that we're looking forward to, eternal life with God, glorified bodies, no more pain, no more uh, exhaustion, no more tears, no more sin, no more death, no more sadness, all of those things that are our future inheritance as Christians The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge or a down payment for those things. saying It's basically God saying, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the third person of the Trinity and I'm going to make good on my promise. Just like if we were to give a pledge. Just like if we were going to put something up. Here, you can have this and you can know that I'm going to take care of this and when I come back, I'm going to make good. And that's what God does with the Holy Spirit. You as someone bearing the Holy Spirit, have been given a pledge that God is going to see you through to the end. That that future inheritance that he promised you, he is going to pay in full. And until we receive that inheritance, we're sealed. And no one's going to be able to break that seal. Not even you. And so we belong to God and are kept secure by the Holy Spirit until we are Redeemed, your eternal security is sealed by the Holy Spirit, not by you. And much like with God the Father and Jesus Christ, um, if the seal can be broken, you have every reason to worry, and I would encourage you to worry uh, if that was possible. But it's not, so you don't have to. And that's all three persons of the Trinity. The eternal security of each believer is dependent on the power of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Dear sheep, you are not responsible for your eternal security. You are not responsible for keeping your salvation. As a member of the flock, you are protected by the good shepherd. As a member of the flock, no one can snatch you out of either of their hands. As a member of the flock, no one can break the seal of the Holy Spirit on you, including you. So what do we do with this? Uh, rejoice, that would be be my recommendation to you, is to be incredibly glad because you never have to worry about losing your salvation ever again if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you had spent time worrying about that, you don't have to anymore because it's not on you. If God can stop being God, you have every reason to worry, but he cannot, so you don't have to worry. Instead, you can rejoice. Instead, you can praise God and you can thank God That each and every single member of the Trinity is protecting you. And don't take this as a license to sin, because that's something that we see even in Scripture when Paul writes to various churches. This idea that, well, if God's taking care of it and I can't lose it, then I can do whatever I want, and I won't lose my salvation. That's the wrong response to this. That is not what you are called to do as a Christian. Don't take it as a license to sin. Instead, use it as an opportunity to give thanks and praise to the Lord. As one of his sheep, live like him. As Paul puts it in Romans 6.13, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Make your life, now that you know that your salvation is secured in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, let your life be a thank you an offering of praise by presenting yourself for righteousness, by being willing to serve God and to push forth his kingdom. That is the proper response to your eternal security. That is the proper response to not having to worry about or not living in fear is instead to live in thanksgiving and in praise and in peace and to happily follow the good shepherd. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for another day that you've given us. I thank you for your word. And that it's not just one person protecting our eternal security, but it's all three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I pray that there are any Christians here who that was something that worried them. They worried that they were one misstep from being cut off from you, from being lost Forever, I thank you that your word gets rid of that fear and gets rid of that worry and instead replaces it with joy and with peace, knowing that you are a good shepherd and you have sealed us until we receive that future inheritance in heaven. Let that be a comfort to us. Let that give us peace. And let us go from here, not looking for ways to sin, knowing that we are eternally secure, but rather looking for ways to praise you and to glorify you because we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in worry. Encourage us to live in praise and live in thanksgiving to you and the work that you continuously do in our salvation. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.